Hey, online friends, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Uh, as you can see, hopefully over here, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper here in uh, just a little bit. And so if you haven't already, uh, man, make, go round up the supplies. If you uh, didn't make it to the grocery store this week, if you didn't do those, you know, have something around the house, go grab some either crackers or some fruit juice, something like that, grape juice, whatever you'd like. We're going to be doing that uh, at the end. But let me also say thanks for joining us online. I know there's some crazy days, and, and some of you are, you know, normal attenders of Biltmore Church, but some of you aren't. We actually have had more people who have been watching uh, online over these last few weeks than we typically have physically uh, sitting in the chairs at the different locations. And so uh, thank you so much uh, for doing that. Uh, let us know if you're watching on Facebook particularly. Let us know where you're watching from. We've had people everywhere from Haiti to the Middle East to Qatar to Canada to all different places. So let us know where you're watching from, but thank you very, very much uh, for, uh, for tuning in today. And we're going to be in Matthew 26 here in just a few minutes. Uh, let me also uh, say a couple of things to uh, our church family. First of all, thank you, uh, Biltmore Church. You guys have done a just a great job. Man, I love you. I'm so proud of you. Uh, the way we try to seek to love God and uh, love our neighbors in this crazy time uh, the, the latest thing this past week we've done, there was a food drive. You guys made it a huge success. Uh, because of your generosity, we were able to uh, deliver thousands of items uh, to three of our partners. All right, there's uh, Western Carolina Rescue Mission in Buncombe County. There's Interfaith in Henderson County. And then you've got Macon County Care Net in Macon County, where our Franklin campus is. Uh, and we were able to not just deliver, uh, again, thousands of items uh, to them that you all brought up here, but also because of your generosity, each one of those also had an extra financial gift to help them through these difficult times as well. And then, hey, this next week, uh, as we approach Easter, and Good Friday and then Easter, uh, what we want to let you know is uh, because of your generosity, we want to love on a section of Western North Carolina that has been particularly uh, hard hit, uh, and that are the, those are the servers of all of the restaurants that have been closed because of the, uh, the pandemic, all right? And so what we've done is we've already We've already talked to a number of different restaurant owners in all three of the counties that we have campuses in. And what we're doing is we're going to be giving some of those full-time, the full-time servers, waiters and waitresses, we're just going to give them a Walmart gift card just to help them uh, try to get through until maybe the stimulus check comes or whatever. Uh, but just a card and a Walmart card to say, you know, to thank you. Uh, we love you. God loves you. Uh, and so far, we've already got about 300 to 350 people that we've already done that. So we've got a little bit of room more. And so again, until it, until it runs out, we, if, you will, if you have a server and again, a full-time waiter or waitress in Western North Carolina that their hours were either pulled back or their job was completely done away with, and you feel like that would bless them, and you feel like that would demonstrate the gospel in some way to them, if you would just uh, go to this, if you just email us at this uh, email right here, missions at biltmorechurch.com, and we just need their name, and we need the restaurant in which they uh, typically have served at. And uh, again, while the supplies last, we're going to, we'll, we'll try to contact that restaurant owner, get that to those servers again. And that's just really, you all are generous. That was generosity you guys have shown month after month, week after week, year after year. So thank you uh, for that. One of the things we talk about is uh, we want to be a movement. All right, a movement. All right. And you can't quarantine a movement. You can't quarantine the gospel. You can't quarantine the Holy Spirit. And you certainly can't quarantine the Great Commission. So thank you, church, for doing that. There'll be other things throughout this 
time where we're trying, again, to declare the gospel as well as demonstrate the gospel. So thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. All right, Matthew 26 is where we're going to be. Let me start off with a story that I thought about this week because this week we celebrated, or you might not have celebrated, but we had April Fool's, all right? Whether you know it or not, a true story, this is not an April Fool's joke, but 30 years ago uh, when I proposed to my wife, I proposed to her on April Fool's Day. I mean, how dumb am I? I that's, that is, that's dumb. But I didn't even know it was April Fool's. I was so caught up in trying to plan how I was going to ask her to marry me. And basically what I did is we were in Fort Worth, and we went out on a, a date, and then we went over. There's a chapel over there near Fort Worth near TCU that we sometimes had, would go and talk and pray. And so uh, she didn't really think anything was up. And, uh, again, there was a wedding in there. They eventually left. We went in there. We were talking, went to the altar to pray. And when she opened up her eyes, boom, I had that ring right there. And she knew it was April Fool's, and she's like, I opened it up. I was like, will you marry me? And she's like, are, are you kidding? And I'm like, that is not the right answer, all right? But she's thinking I'm making a joke because it was April Fool's. I'm like, yes, I'm serious, I'm serious. And then she realized it was serious. She said yes, best decision I've ever made. But when she said, are you kidding, I thought, man, I'm not kidding at all. If you knew what went on to get this diamond, as a matter of fact, that's one of the biggest memories that I have, other than her saying yes, was how I even got that diamond and the impact it had on me. Again, short story, long story, very short. Here's what it is. Is weeks earlier, I had gone over to Dallas to this diamond guy. It wasn't shady. It was just a guy that had said, okay, we sell diamonds. And I went in there, didn't know anything about diamonds. He held up a few. And when he held up that one, I eventually bought. I was stunned at how awesome it was. I mean, just the clarity of it, the way that it, he had held it up to the light, but it was next level when he took that diamond and he spread out this dark, dark velvet cloth and he plopped that diamond down on that velvet cloth, that thing just came alive. What was awesome, what was amazing to begin with, when it was set against the backdrop of that velvet cloth, I thought, that is stunning. That's what I want to try to do today before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. What I want to do is I want to try to paint the backdrop in which the Lord's Supper is actually celebrated really for the first time some 2,000 years ago. And the goal for the message is really kind of twofold as we, as we look at this, because what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Lord's Supper, but within it is the backdrop of the famous betrayal by Judas Iscariot. Now, whether you go to church or whether you've been to church or art at all, everybody knows Judas. It's like Judas is the guy that betrayed Jesus. You don't want to be a Judas. Everybody knows Judas, and that's the famous betrayal. But the two points I want to try to get across and implement in this message this, is Judas represents all of us. Judas represents all of us. He's not just some ultimate sinister villain out in the shadows. Okay? Judas represents us. Judas represents me. Judas represents you. The way that the story is told in, in Matthew is to show us that, you know what, uh, we are Judas, that our sin is greater than we could even imagine. But as he segues into the Lord's Supper, what I want to illustrate is that God's grace is greater than you could ever dream. And knowing both, both the, the sinfulness of our sin and the greatness of God's grace is what helps us walk with neither a limp or a swagger, if you know what I mean. It, it helps us to not walk with either shame or, or pride. And so as we jump into this, this is meant to free us, and it's going to free us from a bunch of stuff. Knowing the Lord's Supper and what it represents ought to free us from 
On one hand, it ought to free us from the performance trap, and on the other side, it ought to free us from the pretending trap. It frees us from the performance trap. The performance trap is basically where religious people, we feel like, we're like, you know what, how I perform is how God feels about me. If I perform well and I do certain things, then God's happy with me. And if I perform poorly, then he is not happy with me. And so what we do is that is an exhausting way to actually try to walk with the Lord is the performance way, all right? You're like the gerbil on the treadmill. You're trying to make progress and you never seem to make progress. Knowing the gospel and knowing the grace of God frees you from that. It also frees you from the pretending trap. The pretending trap knows everything is on fire, knows that it's not true in your life, knows that what you're trying to tell people somehow is not connecting with you, and yet you try to pretend that it is, and you walk into churches, all right? It's like, how are things going? It's going great, brother. How are you? And it's really not going great. And so it frees us to be authentic. It frees us. It's often been said that for a person to be happy, a human soul has to feel safe, has to feel clean, and has to feel significant. And what you see here is when we understand the gospel represented and illustrated by the Lord's Supper, man, there is so much you understand. This is not just good news. It is good news. It's not just great news. It is great news. It is glad news. It is emotionally glad news because what you see is there's freedom here. Freedom to know that, you know what, my past doesn't have to define my future. Freedom to know that, you know what, God's mercies are new every single morning. Great news that says there's no way that I can even out the cross. Great news, good news, glad news that says, you know what, there is a world coming where there is no sickness, there is no COVID, there, is no, there are no tears, there is no death. All that to illustrate, let's jump in Matthew 26, and I'm going to start reading in verse 17, and we'll kind of work our way through the passage. So here we are. It says, now on the first day of the unleavened bread, unleavened bread was kind of like a week-long festival, but the main part of that was the Passover, and the Passover and the unleavened bread are sometimes used interchangeably uh, with folks. But now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, I've highlighted the word Passover. You're going to see it three times. It is the dominant backdrop that ends up turning into the Lord's Supper. So the next verse says this, he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. We'll come back to that. My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover, and he's talking about a meal. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they went to prepare. This took a long time. It was very intricate. Everything had significance. Everything had symbolism to it. So they went and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, this is Thursday evening, all right, Jesus is going to be dead about this time the next day. So this is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you, one of you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him, one after the other, is it I, Lord? In other words, am I the one doing it? Am I the one that's going to betray you? I hope it's not. So what you have to understand is what was happening at the table was more than just juice and crackers. It was more than just bread and wine. What was happening here was an entire Passover feast, each part of it having great significance when Jesus then institutes what we know as the Lord's Supper. 
So let's kind of go through that a little bit. Passover was a celebration meal, celebration and a meal that at this point went back thousands of years. And it goes back to the book of Exodus. The second book in your Bible goes back to the book of Exodus when God sets his people free after 400 years of slavery with Egypt. And remember why he did that? All right, remember how he tried to get Pharaoh's attention and he sent plague? Remember those crazy plagues? I mean, frogs and gnats and just crazy stuff. All right, and each time Pharaoh would like, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. And finally, there's a 10th plague. And that 10th plague is called the, de- the plague of the death of the firstborn. Basically, here's the way it goes. In a nutshell, or in spark notes, here's the way it goes. He warns the people, he warns the people, listen, the firstborn, animal, child, Jew, Egyptian, the firstborn is going to be killed unless you take a lamb, a spotless lamb, you kill the lamb, you put the blood on the doorpost, and then I want you to celebrate, I want you to celebrate this meal uh, because of what I'm about to do. I'm about to, he's about to set the people free. And I began to think about that and I studied this all week. I was like, man, this whole, there was so much intricacy and it developed over the years from that first one on. And so what they would do is they would go out and they would kill this lamb and they would, they would, they would take this lamb and they would kill it and then they would eat it and then they would spread the blood over the doorpost and it's like over and over and over again. And I began to think, it's like, man, at some point, some little four-year-old, five-year-old little boy, and he's like, you know what, dad, 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 this isn't fair. Why are you taking the lamb? That's my pet. That's my pet. Why are you taking him? And the dad at some point had to say, look, boy, look, boy, it's either, it's either the lamb or it's you, all right? It's either the lamb or it's you. And after that first Passover, the next morning, the question was not, had firstborn, had they died? The question was, was it the lamb or was it the child? And so what the promise was is if you do this, he will pass over. That's where you get the word Passover. You would pass over the judgment. All were guilty, all deserve to die. But what he's trying to instill in the people is the whole idea of a substitute. Listen to me, loved ones. This is the biggest point in the history of Israel because this is the biggest, this is pointing to the biggest event in all of human history. And at this point in our text in Matthew 26, we are one day away. And so you need to understand, even in the big picture, what he's illustrating in the Lord's Supper is the point of the whole Bible. I mean, yes, the Bible is the bestseller. Yes, the Bible is, was written over 1,500 years. Yes, the Bible has 66 books. Yes, the Bible has 40 different authors. Yes, the Bi- all that is very, very true. But there's really one story in this whole book. All of the books have one story. I remember it, it can be put that it's a story really between two trees. I was at our prison ministry maybe a month or so ago, and one of the prisoners wrote an awesome song, an awesome song just called Two Trees. And as they sang that song, I thought, man, that is, that's the Bible right there. It talks about, you know what, there's one tree in the Garden of Eden, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's in the Old Testament. And then there's the tree that the Son of God dies on as the Passover lamb. All right, so let me do a quick flyby and show you how this fits into the large, what we're just going to call maybe the meta-narrative, so that when we get to this, you understand what Jesus is actually saying because it is rooted in the whole idea of the Passover. All right, so here's the idea. Uh, Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 and 2. They are made by God to be his image bearers. There's not a lot of rules back then, very few rules. It's basically, you know what, take care of the ground, walk around naked, multiply. I mean, that's pretty cool. But he had very few rules. He had one rule. And basically that one rule was like, don't do this. And they eventually said, you know what, we feel like we're smarter than God. 
We feel like, you know what, we, we want the gifts from God, we just don't want God himself, and so they sinned. And then the whole thing, the whole thing was broken. The whole thing was chaotic. We'll talk about how that plays into even what's going on now here in a couple of weeks, but the whole thing broke. And then they tried to run from God. And when they ran from God, he eventually obviously found them. He didn't have a GPS. He knows where they are. But he asked them, where are you? Where are you? And they tried to cover themselves. They tried to cover themselves, which is actually the first religion. The first religion was in, with Adam and Eve saying, let me cover myself, all right? I can fix, I can fix what's broken. I mean, nobody argues something's broken, correct? I mean, even Oprah knows something's broken. But there's a bunch of argument on, okay, uh, what do we do to fix it? So religion says, all right, it's broken, but I can, I can fix it. And the first religion is right there in the garden. But then God does something amazing. He actually says, you know what? And it's, it's like in uh, Genesis 3, verse 15, it's called Proto-Euangelion, the first evangelism, the first good news. And he says, listen, I will send a deliverer. The enemy will bruise his heel, but I will crush his head. And then what you go into is picture after picture after picture after picture after picture of God saying, you know what, there's one coming, there's a rescuer coming, there's a Messiah coming, there's a Savior coming, there's a deliverer coming. And so it's just picture after picture after picture after picture. It's like if you're on a big journey and you're driving and you start seeing these signs, you know, it has your destination 200 miles and then 180 miles and then 150 miles and then 100 miles and then you get really excited when it's like 20 miles. That's kind of what it was. It was this building anticipation that, you know what, God is going to send a deliverer. He's going to send a king. He's going to send a Messiah to make everything right. And so as the Bible goes on, you go from Adam and Eve, and then you fast forward some, you go to like Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is a super significant chapter in the Bible. There's a guy named Abram where God says he calls him out. It's like, all right, I'm going to tell you to go somewhere. Uh, I'm not going to tell you where. I'll tell you when you get there. I mean, you know how that conversation went when he went home and told his wife, how'd that go? We're moving. Where are we moving to? Well, we'll know when we get there. That doesn't go over that well usually, but he does it and they both do it. And he says, you know what? From your seed, Abram, from your seed, there's going to be a deliverer. And then you just fast forward and you go to like to the book of Exodus, which is kind of where the Passover, not kind of, it's where the Passover is. You got the Passover. Then you fast forward a few more chapters, like to around verse or chapters 19 and 20. And then you have the giving of the law, the giving of the 10 commandments. And remember, we talked about before the giving of the law is kind of twofold. For one, it is a, it's a map, all right? It is a map. It's like, okay, here's how you can flourish in life, all right? Here are the rules on how you can flourish and follow God, and here's where to go. This is a map, but it's also a mirror, all right? It's a mirror saying, all right, you can't follow this map very well. All these commands, you don't do them. You're, you're, we're like terrible commandment followers, and it's supposed to show us, you know what? I can't follow the commandments to perfection. I can't even follow any of the 10, not perfectly, not even consistently half the time. And uh, then what happens is like, all right, um, we're going to do what's, the next book is the book of Leviticus in the Bible, which uh, I sometimes think of the book of Leviticus is where Bible reading plans go to die. I mean, that's what it is. They, um, we start off, we're going to read the Bible. And it's like Genesis, we get through there. You know, we kind of struggle with some names, but we're get, Exodus has got some cool stories, Moses and worship and the commandments. And then you get to Leviticus and it's kind of like if you're at the beach and you like are sprinting toward the surf and you're running and you're running super fast and boom, you hit the surf and you just stop. That's what Leviticus is to most believers. Leviticus is like all these rules, all these regulations, all this blood, all this sacrifice, all these specifics. An easy way to remember about the book of Leviticus, which is all about the sacrificial system and how you do it, the whole book of Leviticus is basically saying this, is if we commit this sin, this is what the sin costs. 
that God is holy and God is perfect. And if you sin, this is what it's going to cost. If you do this sin, it's going to cost a dove. If you do that sin, it's going to cost, it's going to cost a goat. But either way, it's going, to, it's going to cost, all right? And they did it year after 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 year. I mean, we could just go into all the specifics. It's like a, it was like a shower. You know, you take a shower, but if you only take a shower one time, you eventually stink, all right? That's what they did in Leviticus. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, they had to do it. Then you just have all these other prophets all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. They're like, there's a, there's a Messiah coming. There's a rescuer coming. And some of them are real clear. I mean, check out, check out Psalm 22 one time. Psalm 22 has a description of somebody being crucified, and it was actually it was actually written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. All right, one phrase in, in Psalm 22, it says, they then pierced my hands and pierced my feet. That is amazing. Talking about that coming Messiah. And then you fast forward some more, prophet after prophet after prophet. You finally get to one called Malachi. Malachi says there's one coming with healing in his wings. And then 400 years where God doesn't speak, 400 years of silence. Just no word. Is God done with his people? Is God ever going to speak to us again? And then John the Baptist. John the Baptist, which by the way, John the Baptist, it's not John because he's a Baptist, all right, any more than Peter's a Presbyterian or Mark's a Methodist. That's not what it means. It means what he was doing is he was out baptizing people. All right, his baptism was one of repentance. And so as he was basically out there calling people to repentance. And John was, man, he was kind of that crazy guy, right? He's the one that had a weird diet. He had a weird outfit. He was, he was that guy. But their expectation of the deliverer, they thought maybe he was, he was him. And they go up to John and they go, John, are you the one? Are you the one that everybody's been writing about? And I love his answer. His, his answer is basically, I'm not, I'm not the one and I'm not even fit to like carry his gym bag, you know? I can't even do that. But then... Then one day, Jesus comes on there and he looks at him and he says, behold, and this is where, behold means pay attention. It means, all right, stop, stop texting, stop writing on Facebook, behold, pay attention to this. John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He says, he didn't say behold a Lamb of God like the thousands that had been sacrifice before. He says, the Lamb of God that takes away. He doesn't just cover it. It's not just good for a year. He's going to take the sin away of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus then goes on. He teaches for about three years. He does miracles. He taught cool stories about everything from money to marriage to all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's awesome. But the reason he came was he was the Lamb of God. And the whole idea of the Passover to the Lord's Supper is, what, supper is what's going to happen on the cross the next day is the fulfillment. Listen, you've got to get this. This whole idea of celebrating the Lord's Supper is rooted in, in what he was trying to tell the disciples, these Jewish men. All this stuff that you've been celebrating for thousands of years is going to be fulfilled tomorrow on the cross. I love the way there's a theologian named uh, John Stott. John Stott said, I think it was in a book called The Cross of Christ. He said, what could have been the symbol for the Christian life? I mean, what could it have been? And he just threw out a bunch of examples. He said, you know, what could it have been? You know, maybe it was going to be a boat, a boat where Jesus would get in and push off from shore, where he would then have uh, better acoustics, where he could then teach people, but it wasn't a boat. He said it could have been a towel, all right? It could have been a towel, a, a towel picturing what he did earlier in the upper room where he uh, took off. Uh, and took the towel and he took off, you know, their sandals and began to 
wash their feet. You know, that you and I should serve people, which we should, but that's not the symbol. It's actually not even, he said it could have been a stone picturing the fact that, you know what, the stone was rolled away. I mean, we're going to celebrate like crazy next weekend. I mean, it's Easter, you know, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. But that, even that is not the symbol of Christianity. The symbol of Christianity has been for who knows how long it's been the cross. The reason it's the cross is that is the intersection of where God's grace and God's justice, where they meet, all right? Where the wrath of God and the grace of God, where they intersect, because that's where the Son of God said, I am the Lamb of God, and then he dies for their sin. So let me show you, let me show you how this text, now with kind of fresh eyes, look at the way that he says this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, check out what he does next. And he took the cup. Now, typically what they would do in the Lord's Supper is they'd have four cups, all right? And they represented four promises God made them way back in Exodus 6, which actually is an amazing deal. Part of it's like, you know what? I will redeem you. You will be my people I will bring you out of slavery, all those things, which is, that's the gospel, all right? Out of slavery into freedom, that's the gospel. And so he says, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. In other words, you've got to actually, there's an offer there, but you have to ingest it. You have to receive it. It can be offered, but if you don't receive it, then it doesn't apply to you. And then the last verse, it says this, for this is my blood of the covenant. Understand what he's saying. All those animals, all that sacrifice, all that stuff, you know what? I'm the fulfillment of the Passover. That lamb that they had at the table right in front of them, there was a lamb on the table and there was a lamb at the table, all right? There was blood that was put over the doorpost and then the next day there was gonna be a blood that was shed on the cross. And so all of this is right here. It says, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many what? For the forgiveness of sins. And um, again, let me be clear, all sin, this is, this is you got to understand, all sin, all sin has to be paid for. God says in Romans, he is both the just and the justifier. And what I've noticed down through the years is there's usually two problems with people who have issues with this whole idea of Jesus dying for sins and substitutionary atonement and I would just put them in this category. Uh, one, of them is, uh, one of them is shame and one of them is swagger. We'll just say that, all right? Swagger and shame. Those two things keep more people from actually coming to the cross than any two things I know. Swagger is basically the idea that, you know what, I'm not going to say I hadn't sinned, but I hadn't sinned as much as some people I know. In other words, my, my sin, I know I sin, but it's not like sin, sin, not compared, and we can just always name somebody. And she's like, I've done some pretty good stuff. I do better than most. There was an interview, um, it's probably two or three years ago now, safe to do it now that he's no longer a presidential candidate, but there was, a, there was an interview done with Michael Bloomberg before he went, if I remember right, to his 50th college uh, reunion. And he was talking to this reporter about, uh, he had just, he'd been kind of been, sobered about how many of his classmates had already passed away. The reporter was thinking to himself, you don't seem to be very bothered by that at all. And here's what this reporter said, quote, he said, if Bloomberg senses that he may not have much time, much time left as he would like, he has little doubt about 
what would await him at a judgment day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he said with a grin, quote, I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven, and it's not even close. That would be called swagger, all right? That'd be called swagger, all right? There are no peacocks in heaven, all right? There is no swagger in heaven. There is no, look what I did to get here. That's the whole point of the Lord's Supper. And even as a believer, you and I have to preach that gospel to us over and over and over and over again because we can develop swagger as well. On Twitter the other day, the place of all knowledge, I'm just kidding, uh, there was actually something edifying on Twitter, and here's what it was. There was a quote that said, quote, if the biggest sinner you know isn't you, if the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. I got to admit, when I first read that, I thought, I'm a big sinner, but I'm not the biggest sinner I know. I mean, I know some bigger sinners. But when you start thinking about, when I start thinking about my motive, some of my actions, some of my words, you don't have to think that long before you think of somebody who is head and shoulders above us, head and shoulders above believers, most believers, and that is the Apostle Paul when he actually told a young pastor, you know what, when I think about the grace of God, when I think about the cross of Jesus, when I think about the holiness of God, then he said, I am actually the foremost of sinners, the foremost of sinners. And, um, but I'd say the second one is this. You got swagger that keeps people from Jesus. You got shame that keeps people from Jesus. People say, you know what, I, 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 I can't be forgiven. I can't be forgiven. Loved one, I don't know how far you've gone. I don't know how long you've been gone. I don't know what you've done. But you, you cannot, you cannot outsend the cross. You, you can't outsend the cross. You can't. And you're like, well, I, I, God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. Listen, please, I mean this lovingly. Don't try to out-holy God, all right? God is holy. And when you say, I can't forgive myself, even though I know that God forgave me, what you're doing is you are exalting your opinion over what God has clearly said that he will do in Christ for you. And so what happens is, uh, for both the believer and the unbeliever, for the believer, for the believer in Jesus, when he sins for maybe the thousandth time, if he doesn't know the gospel, if he is not thoroughly saturated in the gospel, he will run from God in shame instead of running to God in repentance. But a person who never even heard the Bible, never heard the gospel before, if they don't understand the gospel, when they fail, they will run from God in shame instead of running to him in repentance and receiving the grace and the healing that we all want anyway. Let me read you something that Martin Luther, who's the kind of the head of the Protestant Reformation, he said this about the gospel. He said, all the prophets foresaw that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful father went to his only son, put his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul the persecutor, the blasphemer, the oppressor. You will become David the adulterer. You will become Adam, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise. It, it's exactly what the Bible says. It made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it's not that Jesus became uh, Paul the blasphemer or David the adulterer. It says he will become the husband who has neglected his family. He will become the wife who 
uh, committed immorality and ruined a bunch of lives. He will become a drug addict who hurt himself and his loved ones. He will become a teenager who lies to the family. He will become, you can just kind of go on, the hypocrite who leads a double life. He will become the apathetic. He will become the... All of those things, you're like, okay, that that can't be me. It is you. It is me. And so before we even get here, please make sure that you know the answer to the question, have you ever received Jesus as your Savior? Now, I'm not saying have you been a church attender. I'm not saying are you a deacon. I'm not saying are you a pastor or a good person. What I'm saying is, and I know here in the Bible Belt, at least least where we kind of are, I know we got people from everywhere, but understand, oftentimes we have cultural Christianity which says, you know, I go to church, I must be a follower of Jesus. Please don't miss this. Don't, miss, don't roll the dice on this one. Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you received Christ? Because he said, take and eat. Take and eat. The offer is there for all of us, but you've got to take it and eat it. You've got to make it your own. Is there a time, has there been a time where you believe that what he did on the cross, what he did on the cross counted for you? That when he says it is finished, which is the word tetelestai, paid in full, they would stamp it on bills to say, okay, this has been paid in full. When he said it is finished, when he said it is finished, like, you know what? I believe that. Has there been a time where you said, I'm not the boss of me. I'm not the boss of me anymore. God, you're the boss of me. If not, even right now, when you're sitting in your living room or wherever you're sitting, you can keep your eyes open. With your eyes open though, say basically that. Just say, you know, Jesus, I don't know a whole lot but what I do believe is what you did on that cross somehow counted for me. And I'm now saying, I'm not the boss, you're the boss. Would you save me, make me the person you want me to be? All right? We'd love to, know, we'd love to know how to help you. We'd love to send you some material. All right, so let us know in the comments. Let us know with an email. We'd love to know that. But some people are like, well, repentance, I'm, I, and I don't know if I've repented or not. I'm not, per- repentance, listen, this is key. Repentance is not perfection. Repentance is not perfection. Repentance is simply a new direction. So the question goes back, have I actually changed direction? Has there been evidence that I've changed direction? You're like, well, I still fall. Well, we all do. The question really is more, when you fall, what happens? Do you run from God or you run to God? Proverbs says the righteous, they fall seven times, but they get back up. If you get back up and run to God, that is a great example that you are actually in Christ. And you're like, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, you know that from really the the biblical witness, but before we jump in here, you actually know that from the rest of this very chapter, because we didn't read it. You can read it later. But in chapter 26, there's actually a whole bunch of people that betray God, fall, deny Jesus. There's two in particular. One's Judas, and there's one called Peter in this chapter. And you got one that is like the ultimate villain and he ran from God, and he didn't understand the gospel, you have the other one who did virtually the same thing. Jesus said, you will deny me, and he denied him three times. Whether you call it denial or betrayal, it's basically the same thing. And he became the leader of the early church. He became the first disciple to go into the empty tomb. He knew the gospel. He threw himself on the mercy of God. I read it somewhere this week. It says this, when when Judas realized the wrong that he had done, He tried to give the money back and he couldn't because he probably assumed he could never be forgiven because there was no hope. Listen, he was wrong. wrong. The reason we know that is Peter did the same thing as well as all the other disciples. All the other disciples ran. All the other disciples denied him just like Judas had done. And what he doesn't understand, what he doesn't, and he never had done this. Judas had never comprehended this. 
that he was so bad that Jesus, yes, he was so bad Jesus had to die for him. But he was so loved that Jesus was glad to die for him. Like, how do you know that? I'll give you one more little piece of information there. In the story, and it's actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see, you see a lot of different uh, aspects of this scene. There's one part in this story where Jesus actually takes the bread, and when he dips it, he actually hands it to Judas. And people usually just kind of think, well, that's not a, that's not a big deal. That was actually culturally, that was called, I think it's called the karek, karech, where you would actually dip it in like bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs were there about the bitterness of slavery that the Egyptians had put the Jewish people under. And you would dip it in there and then you would hand it to somebody who you greatly wanted to honor or to express the fact that you loved them. And Jesus, knowing what Judas was about to do, knowing that he was going to die on the cross the next day, he dips it in there. And who does he hand it to? He hands it to, he hands it to, he hands it to Judas. And so you might be just like Judas. You might think, you know what? I'm in despair. It can't be. It can be different. It can be. Again, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, the offer of grace is there. That's the whole celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so uh, if you're not a believer, please, man, please receive that offer that is offered at the Lord's Supper. Please do that. If you are a believer, you're like, the Christian life is not that, it's, it's, not, it's hard, but it's not that complicated. It's basically, I get saved by the grace of God, and then I live for the glory of God the rest of my life. I mean, what do you do? What's the Christian life about? Well, I get saved by the grace of God, and then what do I do? Then I live for the glory of God. That's what I live for. That's what, it reorients your whole life. You're like, you know what? I can be authentic because I'm both known and loved. I can be forgiven and I can forgive other people. Why? Because I've been forgiven. I can be generous with other people. Why? Because God was generous with me. I can be patient with people. Why? Because God was patient with me. So it reorients every single thing. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, I'm going to read you some verses. And then I'm going to pray. And then what verse 30 actually says is they sang a hymn, probably Psalm 118 probably Psalm 118. Somewhere between Psalm 113 and 118 is what they would typically sing uh, at the Passover meal. So they probably sang that. We're going to sing Jesus paid it all. All right. So what I'm going to do is we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray for us. And then I'd invite you to sing, celebrate. You can sing lightly if you want to, or you can bust out if, if, if you want to as well. So here's what happened. And this is just unleavened bread. You take, you take what... Uh, what you want to, and here's, here's what the text says. I'm just going to read the same text that we were in. It says, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and then he gave to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then what he did too, and again, this is saying this is the new covenant. This was a picture. This is I mean, Jesus is still there with them, so this is symbolic. He's making a picture, but it's a very clear picture. It's like, you know what? I'm now the Lamb of God. But here's what he said. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.
Father, thanks for, uh, thanks for the new covenant. Thank you that you did pay it all. Thank you that you were the Passover lamb. Thank you that we don't have to look for uh, shadows or symbols about a coming rescue where we can look back and see what you did. God, we look forward to rejoicing next Sunday that if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. We can't wait for that celebration. But right now, help us to somberly celebrate the fact that you were the Passover lamb. You were the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that it would be a celebration, that they would, there would be joy because it's not just good news. It's not just great news. It's glad news. God, I pray for folks that are brand new to the faith, that they're like 10 minutes old, 10 minutes ago. They didn't know exactly what they were doing, but said, they said yes to Jesus. I pray so much that you would put another believer around them or the friend that invited them, they would tell them or they would allow us to have an email or some way we can follow up. But thank you for what you did in their life today. Thanks for the grace you've shown all of us. Thank you for paying it all in Jesus' name. Amen.